Hello and welcome to Pastor Potluck. My name is Peter Constantian. I'm Court Green. And it's just the two of us today, but we've got some good stuff to get into. Now, this is the, we're recording this in the third week of January. We're a week before the presidential inauguration. And many of us last week uh, saw events on TV or heard about them over the radio or read about them in the news or maybe listened to details about what happened in Washington on podcasts. We did an episode last week in which we touched on that slightly, but I have this sense that it's left many of us who are Christian people who are realizing that there's a huge gap in the way we see the world from the way other people see the world, it's left many of us wondering, what can I do to affect change when the problems and the difficulties facing our society seem so dire? What do we need to do in order to change hearts and minds, in order to come together, in order to seek reconciliation, in order to bring healing, in order to convert someone from one mindset to another, many of us are feeling powerless. And if that's you, you're not alone. So the scripture appointed for this week comes from the first chapter of John. And it's a story about conversion. It's a story about generating and seeing and empathizing with that curiosity in each other. And using that as a way to introduce someone to the life and lifestyle of Jesus. And so I think this maybe has some guidance for us as we, as we are wondering, how do we live in this world? What do we do when it seems like the problems we're up against are so great? How do we work to change the world? So court, I was hoping that you would be able to read for us today scripture, which is from John, I believe it's chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Would you read that for us? I absolutely will. John 1, 43 through 51 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under a fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Thus ends the reading. Thanks be to God. So, Court, what do we have here in this story by your evaluation as you're reading 
what kind of thoughts come to mind about what this story is about? Well, the go-to answer is that it's a call narrative, but it's so not a typical call narrative. For one thing, it doesn't leave anything that we know of. And that's probably because it's from John. Now, I'm going to get off on a little bit of a tangent, but it won't take long. I love the synoptic gospels. I love some of the stories in John, but my go-to gospel is Mark. And that is nothing but personal preference. But so all that to say, it doesn't come as a surprise to me that John is a little bit, bit out there compared to the other call narratives. And generally in a call narrative, you have Jesus approaching someone and that person being amazed by Jesus in one way or the other, be it with something they saw or something that he, they, that he said. And they will be so enamored that they just want more of this guy and they leave something behind, be it family or, which is not good probably, or a career or even possessions. And they leave it all to follow him, to be more like him. This is not that. And one of the reasons, because Jesus doesn't seek Philip out and certainly doesn't seek Nathaniel out. Instead, uh, he finds Philip and then says to him, follow me. Now, maybe you're seeking him, seeking him, I don't know. But certainly not Nathaniel. Nathaniel is approached by Philip. And so you have a, a layer of separation there. And so that stands out to me um, as, you know, to answer the first question, what do I make of this? But I think one of the beautiful things about it is that in this, we see that, you know, you were talking about, you know, how can you quote unquote change someone's mind? Uh, I think a better way of saying that, not to cast aspersions upon you who I love dearly, but maybe a, a more politically correct way of saying that would be, how can you uh, bridge a gap or reach out to someone? In this, you see Philip doing that. He is going to someone and he's got this, this new worldview that seems to have just hit him instantly. And he wants Nathaniel to have that too. So he's trying to, to reach out to someone and bridge a, a potential gap between them. And what stands out to me are three words, and we'll talk about that whenever you're ready to. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely see how this story differs from other call stories, especially like you said, when we talk about Nathaniel, who Jesus doesn't call directly. And it's and it kind of diverges from what we would expect in a conversion narrative or a, or a call story in that uh, in that there's no discipleship formation that's happened in Philip's life. He, he just hears the call to follow Jesus and he starts doing it. And before he does anything else, before he even sees Jesus do anything, he immediately goes to his fam, his, his friend, Nathan or Nathaniel and, and says, Hey, this is the person we've been looking for. So to me, rather than really, um, sit, representing like changing someone's heart or changing someone's mind. This is an example of Philip remembering something that Nathaniel, his friend was longing for and going mm -hmm. and sharing it with him, or at least pointing him in that direction uh, when he finds it for himself or when he thinks that he has found it for himself. And, uh, and so let's talk about how, well, before we get into how he does that, I just want to say 
to connect with my introduction that this might be disappointing to many people, but Christianity actually offers us a way of changing the world, only it may not feel as large or as powerful as we feel like we need in this time, in these times. But, but really, what we believe, you know, that Jesus told us to do, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, if we look back over the course of Christianity, that has changed the world. But it's a small impact, and it's an impact that we have on the people that we know, as we see in the case of Philip and Nathaniel here. And so my challenge to everyone is, let's listen to this story and unpack it a little bit and understand what is the tools, what, what are the tools, what is the mechanism by which Jesus changes the world through relationships? So one thing that I noticed about um, Nathaniel is his response to Philip when Philip tells him that we have found the one Moses wrote about. Nathaniel says, can anything from Nazareth be good? What that betrays is a little bit of a prejudice on Nathan's, mm -hmm. on Nathaniel's part that, you know, maybe he is uh, one of these Jerusalem elites or, you know, he's part of that group of people perhaps. And he's wondering, you know, there's this big divide between the city and the country this rural place called Nazareth, Nazareth, an agricultural city, is, does any, is anything import, of importance going to come out of there? But I think what's key is that he's curious, right? How many people did Jesus pass over who would have just written off anybody from Nazareth as unable to bring change, unable to be the promised Messiah. Instead, so, this, so are you saying that, are you saying that Philip used Nathaniel's prejudice against him? Like kind of wetting his appetite. You won't believe this. Something great happened from Nazareth. It was like embedded in his words. Yeah, in a way, but there's this questioning and this curiosity in Nathan that may, or Nathaniel that may not be, I'm like giving Nathaniel a nickname here. I hope that's okay. But uh, all right. Um, he, there's this curiosity in him that sometimes we lose and sometimes we don't see that. But when we find that, um, as Philip does, he gives him something to, yeah, to whet his appetite to say, well, maybe, maybe there is something about this guy, Jesus, who's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel is at least open to the possibility. I have theory, I have an idea about maybe why that is, but um, would you take us into how Philip responds to Nathaniel's curiosity? Well, originally Nathan's response that you just read or, or repeated, can anything come to out of Nazareth, is answered by what I think are the best three words in here, which I've already told Peter that, and that is simply come and see. And I think when, the reason that I love this so much and have for a long time is that it doesn't put the onus on Philip to prove or convince in any way. It puts it back on Jesus. And so much of our quote-unquote witness or uh, so much of the perception of Christianity comes from Christians who think that they are God's PR agents and therefore must convince others by their own human power to believe like they do. 
And this causes a lot of strife and this causes people to develop an image in their minds of what Christianity is or what any, any ism really is based on how aggressive or, or, or in what other ways we try to convince them and make these arguments on behalf of God when the original, I guess, evangelist, so to speak, when Philip's going out and, you know, doing this kind of on his own, but not really reaching out to his friend to bring him closer to Jesus, he does not do anything to convince him. He invites him instead to see for himself. We are not God. And we need to stop pretending that we are as if we need to prove who God is. We can tell our stories of what God has done, but the invitation is come and experience it for yourself. And I think that really applies to a lot of situations. It involves a lot of vulnerability, letting someone see your relationship with God. It involves some degree of risk, but at the same time alleviates some, because number one, you're not, you're risking this position of, I guess, superiority where you are the guy that brings someone close. You're giving up the opportunity to be the gate gatekeeper, but that's not your role anyway. Mm-hmm. And you are get also released from the responsibility that we, for whatever reason, put on ourselves that if we don't personally go out and make people think like we do, then we're a failure. That's never called for in the in scriptures and really shouldn't be in any other part of our lives. Uh, live and let live is, a, is an important and, and freeing thing. Nathaniel seems to be free to choose or not choose, and it is so because Philip is free to invite him in to see for himself, as opposed to Philip saying, well, if I don't convince you, then I've failed. And when we think like that, we have these other toxic thoughts. For instance, I'll only be friends with the people that I have convinced. Or if they don't like my ism, they must not like me and therefore I can't like them. And so by, by taking this responsibility that, that at least in this pericope is not ours and putting it on ourselves, we invite all these other toxic thoughts. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I like what you said about live and let live. It, it kind of provoked in me another thought, which is that um, part of, introducing someone to Jesus and not taking responsibility for whether that pans out eventually is our belief that Jesus is alive. Mm -hmm. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes as Christians, we think of, we take it on ourselves to be the, the ones that have to convince somebody to follow Jesus because Maybe Jesus isn't real for us in that moment in the way that we, we feel like we want Jesus to be real for that person that we're introducing. And so I would say, you know, I would share the wisdom that was handed to me when I started divinity school, which was so such a relief, which is that no, no human can change another human's heart that when it comes to conversion, all that we can do 
as human beings is bear witness. All we can do is bear witness to what has changed in our life, what has changed in, um, in our hearts, what has changed in our communities, and tell that story. But ultimately, it's God who is responsible for conversion. It's God who is responsible for changing hearts. When, I had, when, when that was taught to me, it, it, became, it was such a relief because like, like you said, Court, like I grew up being taught like that this is your responsibility is to like uh, bring people to the faith and to convert people as if conversion was an action that I could perform. But mm-hmm. learning that that is reserved for God only and that my responsibility is just to bear witness to the changes that have happened in my life made it so much easier to imagine how to be a disciple. Mm-hmm. The need for change is something that we're all acknowledging. And, you know, I've regularly reminded my congregation that as we have expanded our technological capacity, whether it's the internet or even TV or radio, our ability to take in information has increased tremendously. We are aware when something good or bad happens, usually bad, happens miles, states, nations away from us. But our ability to affect change and to do something about it hasn't really grown much. Technology hasn't given us the ability to make an impact on a, on a huge number of people. I mean, we like to think so. That's why we get into thread wars on Facebook. But yeah. do we ever actually change someone's mind in that way? Very rarely, I would say. Instead, the way that we affect change, it's pretty much the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And we see Philip doing it here by inviting his friend Nathaniel, whose longings he knows, to lean into that curiosity and come and see about Jesus. And so I think if we actually look at our own stories, each of us has a personal Philip, somebody who invited us to take a second look or a first look at Jesus. And that made all the difference. It led us to following for the first time, or perhaps in a deeper and more trusting way. Court, do you have, or can you recall a story either from your own life or some, someone else's life that you've seen firsthand of a Philip kind of interaction? As far as Philip's in my life, um, there, there have been a few and I like the way you phrased that. Can I tell a story from my life or someone else's? I don't think it's my, um, it's not my, I don't have permission, I should say, to tell someone else's story. But in my own life, there have been many Phillips. There have been many people that drew me closer to what God was doing, um, who invited me to come and see in a closer way. And it, it tends to come in stages. Um, when I was a teenager, there was one. And then when I grew up a little bit, there were some more. And then I got married. And there's, I mean, Christy is. I don't want to be blasphemous, but she is like the voice of God to me. She's very more spiritually in tune than I am. And so she tends to draw me closer to what God is doing. 
anyway, all of that said, um, the story is one of those that's from my teenage years. There was a Sunday school teacher and I realized that not of them come, all of them come from the church, but there was a Sunday school teacher. And when I needed a father figure, he stepped up and he never made it about him. And we're still friends actually, but he never made it about him. And he always made it about being, I guess, a physical in front of me manifestation in a way of, of, you know, Christ-like behavior. And in doing so, like he, he kind of invited me to be a part of his family. In other words, he, he just let me be close to him and them. He never lectured me about spirituality or about Jesus or about anything. He just let me exist when I needed someone with whom to exist. And in doing so, essentially asked, invited me to come and see. And in what I saw, which I think is what's often left out when we think about those three words, come and see. Well, what did you see? In my experience of him being Philip to me, and I certainly had my Nathaniel-like doubts and you know prejudices, I suppose. But in my experience, what I saw was him being Christ-like to his family, him modeling Christ-like behavior. Was he perfect? No, hell no. But he tried to just love people who needed to be loved. And through that experience, I learned, hopefully, to do the same. And it kind of shoved me, not shoved, that sounds more violent than I intended to be, nudged me forcefully in the direction of where I ended up, which is ministry. And I, I'm not saying that he, he in any way tried to influence me to go that way. He just loved me and in that way brought me closer to Christ by letting me come and see the love that he displayed to others. Mm-hmm. That was a very wordy answer to that question. No, that's, that's really awesome, though, because I love what you said about how what was so uh, powerful about that interaction was that it, it, it there was no lecturing. It, the, the lecturing was absent from the relationship. And I think oftentimes we get worried about being a teacher of how to, because certainly discipleship formation involves education, but there are so many ways to teach someone besides just lecturing. And it sounds like that's that just living in close proximity and seeing his example was an education for you. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. It does not say come and learn, mm-hmm. although they did. It mm-hmm. says come and see. And that's a, that's a deeper learning in a way, because in my way of interpreting that, it's not with your eyes, it's come and experience. Mm-hmm. It's a more holistic thing than just witnessing as a fly on the wall. And so it's to come into Jesus's pre- uh, to come into Jesus's presence and experience in totality who he was, not what he was teaching, not what he has to offer me, but who he is. Mm-hmm. And then the discipleship starts, which is then learning how to be that yourself, mm-hmm. not by a lecture, but by modeling the disciple. That's how discipleship works. Yeah. And that, that to me actually ties in well with like, what are we talking about when we say apostle versus disciple? 
And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe the Greek word for apostle, apostolo, means one who is sent. Whereas disciple, I think the Greek word is methetes. I'm studying. I just signed up for Greek one. So forgive me, all you Greek speakers. Um, so I you know enough. I know enough to get myself in trouble, but uh, I believe the Greek, the Greek word for disciple methetes means to follow or a follower. And that's what Jesus asks Philip to do. He says, follow me, which to me brings us right back to the fact that Jesus is a living being, a living person. That's what we believe as Christians and what we need to be doing as we try to practice discipleship is to follow. What, what makes an idea alive, Peter? An idea alive? What makes an idea or a movement alive? Take, take Jesus' spiritual or physical out of it. Not saying that I don't believe in Jesus, but let, let's take him out of this discussion just for the moment. We'll just sit. I don't want to say set Jesus on a shelf, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. What makes an idea or a, move, or a movement alive? I think it's faith. I think it's the faith of those who are following it. I think that's a, that's a huge part of, of it. I mean, um, in the letters from Paul, we hear him say, you know, that our faith is uh, in things unseen and things that are hoped for and yet not seen. I think there's something to that. And I think that we need to explore that more. And I certainly think that faith is what makes an idea powerful, uh, hmm. the faith of the follower of that idea. But I think the critical thing that makes an idea or a movement powerful is its ability to adapt and to change hmm. and not be rigid. That's what keeps an idea or a movement from becoming yesterday's news or archaic or what have you. Yeah. And I mean, as you're saying that I'm thinking about life generally, right? Life is yeah. adaptive by its nature. Um, and, and we, we should expect that the life of God is similarly adaptive. So uh, the reason I brought that up is because I'm thinking about Philip and I'm thinking about Nathaniel and I'm thinking about Jesus and I'm thinking about, how he invites them to come and see and not to come and learn, although they do learn. And I think the reason that his invitation was to come, well, first to come follow, which also says nothing of learning. And the second is to come and see, to experience, which says nothing about sitting down and hearing a speech or an argument. And I think the reason, if I can channel Jesus for a moment, may have been that this is an idea, a movement that I'm starting that I want to live forever. And therefore it needs to be about more than just the platform that I give at this moment. It needs to be something that is alive, that can withstand changes by being adaptable, but having at its core something that's, it's got a, it's got a strong foundation. Uh, that shouldn't change. Yeah. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, these kind of things. And then from there, it can, it can, I suppose, blow in the wind. Um, what, what the problem is, in my opinion, when we take it away from come and see or come follow and we get into learn what I learned, think like me, agree with me, is that we're so rigid that the idea or the movement dies it becomes institutionalized mm -hmm. and then it becomes somewhat of a, like a purity test. 
litmus test. Is that what it's called? I don't know where, where you must think this way or you can't be a part of the crowd. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes up us and them. And then we're at each other's throats. And ladies and gentlemen, that in a nutshell is America today. Mm. It's, it's, it, we don't live in a come and see America anymore. We live in a think like me or else America mm. now. And it's disturbing. Yeah, it reminds me of what Father Tim used to say in our lectionary groups that uh, that tradition, which he is a big fan of, you know, customs and traditions and practices that we engage in together. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. That is to mm-hmm. say that those who have died have given us this gift, these traditions, and when we practice them, we are engaging in the living faith that they have shared with us. Whereas traditionalism, which uh, he opposed, that's Father Tim, is traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And those words stuck with me. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. When, to say that more clearly, traditionalism is what we get into when we stop believing in a living God that we are following and that, and who is adapting and who is inviting us into that creative adaptation. And instead we just keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. And the reason we do that, getting back to the faith thing that we mentioned earlier is because uh, faith gives the, uh, these ideas or these movements power, even when they're dead. Even when they were so rigid that they didn't understand the test of time. And so when we, when we put our faith into traditionalism or when we put our faith into whatever is we want it to be, we give power to this idea, whether it's a good idea, a practical idea, a dead movement, whatever. We, when we pledge our faith to it, it controls us to some degree. Mm-hmm. It becomes, we make it a part of our identity and, and to, to admit that it isn't perfect is to admit that we are flawed in our minds. I think that's wrong, but it is what, where, where a lot of us are. By the way, Father Tim McCree was a um, Episcopal minister across the street from where I work, and he retired last year, and we love him. And he was on one of the shows when we were on the radio. And that, so what, to, what you're saying about, you know, traditionalism and how we, you know, continue to just repeat that over and over again, that ties back to me to Nathaniel's prejudices, which we exposed at the beginning. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right. He had internalized this practice of prejudging Nazareth and its people as less than or incapable of producing the kind of faith and faithful people that he thought was necessary uh, for a true messianic movement, I guess. But the, the powerful thing about this passage is how Jesus responds. It seems to me by Jesus' statement, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. In John, Jesus is portrayed as as very omniscient, very all-knowing. And so there's a sense here that Jesus knew about Nathaniel's prejudices. 
he knew that he was unlikely to believe what Philip had to say. And yet he welcomed him anyway, right? And acknowledged him and said, I see in you someone who's without deceit. At least you're willing to admit your prejudices, right? He saw goodness in Nathaniel. And sometimes that's all it takes for us to ask a deeper question is for someone to see goodness inside of us. And so I think one of the encouraging messages I pull from this passage is how we need to overcome those prejudices that we have and speak into the lives of those people who are in our lives, who may be different from us, and acknowledge the goodness that we see inside of them. Because I think that was really the major step for Nathaniel in acknowledging Jesus as Lord. I think that uh, one of the more beautiful juxtapositions in this that I didn't think about until you were just talking about that is that on one hand, Nathaniel with that prejudice seems to be so rigid and yet Jesus is so open, even though he seems to know that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that Nathaniel is prejudiced against him, not personally, but the place from which he comes. And so my question in response to your, who is your Philip is, who is your Nathaniel? Who do we, if we are going to be Christ-like, need to go to that we know is opposed to us Mm. be it in ideology or racism or whatever who could we reach out to who we know isn't going to respond well probably because they're so rigid in thinking they're so they, they are prejudiced against us or whatever it's not always i mean it'd be great if everyone who was a bigot would put down their bigotry but another way to address this is for those who are not or those who are on the receiving end of bigotry to be willing to take that. Is that fair? No. But what if they were willing to be the ones that tried to penetrate those prejudices and say, no, don't think you know me based on how I look or where I'm from or, or my accent or whatever. Instead, come and see who are who are our Nathaniels? Yeah, that's so good. I mean, and like I said earlier, like how we don't know how many people Jesus and Philip passed by who didn't have that spark of curiosity to just ask the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? They yeah. settled on him. And I think there's something about the fact that Philip knew Nathaniel personally. He knew that there is a deep longing inside of him to find this Messiah that wasn't satisfied by the prejudices that he had been handed. And so I'm inviting you, our listener, to think about the people in your life who obviously represent a spectrum of opinions and political positions and even positions of faith. And you'll find, I think, and as I think about this, there are people in my life who I know, they're just Maybe now is not not the right time. Maybe they're totally set in their ways, but there are some that I can think of who have a deep longing that I believe uh, the person, the living person of Jesus Christ can speak to. And we need to reach out to those folks and say, hey, that thing that you've been searching for that you haven't been able to find, I think we can, we can look together. Let's go and see. 
Now, I can't convince you that this is absolutely going to work. But what I do know is that from studying history, this is exactly how the Christian church expanded. A book that I read a little while ago was called, um, was written by the author Rodney Stark, and it was called The Rise of Christianity. He's a sociologist by training, and he just decided to take a look at the historical information that we have about the expan expansive Christianity and to look at the mechanisms by which that expansion happened. It was exponential. At the very beginning, it probably seemed very unsuccessful because they went from a couple hundred to 7,000 over the course of a century. That's a very yeah. slow growth. But after that, it started to grow in such a way that even though maybe its growth slowed down in absolute terms, I'm sure it would have appeared miraculous to everybody who is observing. But the mechanism for growth was simply this, that people were inviting those folks who are in their own personal circles to come and see, to come and join them in the practices that they were participating in, in caring for the sick, in caring for the poor, uh, in the love feast, in the service of communion, in collective worship, which was happening in people's homes, not in any large buildings. And in that way, person by person by person, the, the word of God and the living person of Jesus Christ was introduced to millions of people. And so I want to encourage everybody who's listening today that if you don't feel like you're, you have the power to affect change, you do. And Philip is our role model here. It, it's not about being super eloquent. It's not about being very book smart. It's not about um, the way you look or the way you present yourself to other people. You don't have to have charisma. It's only about inviting people in and knowing the deep longing that they have and speaking to that and saying, come and see. Well, I can say one thing. Thank God you don't have to have charisma. Because I would not have a job. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for preaching a little bit there. But this is something that I really, you know, it's just speaking to me here from this passage from John is that the, the work of discipleship and the work of changing the world is as simple and as complicated as this. Inviting those we know, those we care about, who may see the world differently than us. And to be honest, who doesn't see the world differently from me? I mean, everybody does. We all have a unique viewpoint, but inviting one another and creating community with one another and maintaining that curiosity and that openness. So all this talk about come and see has me thinking about one other thing, and that is it's kind of introspective because if you are going to invite people to come and see, what are they going to see? Hmm. And it, in a way that kind of makes you want to clean house a little bit. And I don't know if it's designed to do that, but I was just thinking about that in my life. Like if I was to be the fillet to someone, mm -hmm. would they see what I thought they saw or would they see something else that I didn't even notice was there? Um, and so, I mean, it's really, it's, it's really about inviting them to come and see. I, if we're talking about this in, in Christ 
centered terms as I think we are. Come and see what God is doing in your life. But there's a lot of other things in my life. And maybe I need to clean those up. I, I don't know. It's just something I thought of. Yeah, no, that's super important. We're reading the Gospel of Mark this year. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of discussion on the Gospel of Mark. I just learned today that it's Court's favorite gospel, so I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. talk about it. Uh, one of the commentaries I'm reading that's sort of helping me get ready for that uh, for that focus on Mark is saying was saying that the audience that Mark was writing to, he kind of made some assumptions, some basic assumptions about them. He was writing to a Christian audience. His gospel is directed to a community that he assumed were doing three things. One, they were in community, right? They were actively involved in one another's lives. It was a community of Christians that were worshiping uh, or, or somehow gathering on a regular basis. They were involved in one another's lives. That's one. Two, they had meaningful interactions with the poor. And when I say meaningful, I mean relationships with people who are impoverished that had the potential to change their lives. Mm-hmm. And third, that they were actively engaged in a political struggle. They were somehow either being oppressed or persecuted or trying to push back on limitations and restrictions that the overarching culture was putting on them. And as Christians today, I think our lives need to look very similarly. You know, we need to be engaged in our communities. We need to have meaningful interactions with the poor in ways that can change our lives. And we need to be engaged in some sort of societal critique or some sort of political struggle because we know that the kingdom is not yet. Mm-hmm. And so as far as cleaning up my life and getting my life in order so that when I invite someone to come and see, they see something that's life-changing. I think mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to be focusing on for this year is those three things, community, meaningful relationships with the poor and engagement in societal critique, critique or political struggle. And I invite everyone to, to come with us on that journey as we study Mark together. I think that that's a good place to close it is to leave them with that question. What will people see if you invite them to come and see? Mm-hmm. And um, I partially think we should close it because I got to take my son to the dentist. But uh, I also think that's a good question to end on, even if it wasn't my own. I'm not trying to promote myself here or anything. Yeah. Most of Peter's points are better than mine. I'll admit that. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, I, I am willing to close it. I feel like this has been a good conversation and I think it is always good to leave these uh, discussions open-ended because we don't have all the answers. Nope. If we did, the world would be a very terrible place. I'm not that smart. And uh, you're pretty smart, but I don't think, I don't think we have all the answers. For Pastor Potluck, I am Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And I thank you for listening and hope that you will again. Thank y'all. Bye.